welcome back to the Australian Histories Podcast. Today we're going to have a look at the life of short story writer and balladist Henry Lawson. Writing from the 1870s until his death in 1922, he became one of the best-known and best-loved Australian writers. Brought up in the bush, but spending his adult life in the city, he was a man who remained sensitive to the hardships and challenges of the lives of ordinary Australians. Often referred to as a bush poet, and later the poet of the people, his work fostered a pride in being Australian born and bred at a time when England was still regarded as the homeland for many. He had the ability to paint evocative images with his words and displayed equal measures of comedy and painful realism in his portraits of Australian life. He was also a complicated bloke who battled for equilibrium all his life, but still an author and a poet to be celebrated. Before we get stuck into Henry's story, I want to welcome and thank Aaron A. to the Australian Histories Podcast Patreon family. Thanks for signing up to support the show, Aaron. And a big thank you also to Catherine for her generous one-off contribution. I'm so happy you're enjoying the stories we tell, and I really appreciate your patronage. Thanks. This episode will go out at the end of December 2020, but after the exhausting year we've all experienced, I'm sure you'll appreciate, I just need a little refueling time, so I expect to take a break through January this year. During this episode, I will quote a few lines from Henry Lawson's work, but I may record a few of the short stories and poems in full, and then post them as they're ready throughout January, if you'd care to hear them read, so do keep an ear out for those over January. For now, though, let's turn our mind to Henry Lawson. Our Andy's gone with cattle now, our hearts are out of order. With drought he's gone to battle now across the Queensland border. He's left us in dejection now, our thoughts with him are roving. It's dull on this election now since Andy went to droving. Who now shall wear the cheerful face in times when things are slackest? And who shall whistle round the place when fortune frowns her blackest? And who shall cheat the squatter now when he comes round us snarling? His tongue is growing hotter now since Andy crossed the darling. In the late 1800s, Australia was developing its own identity and celebrating the differences between the new country and the old. We had a number of excellent artists and writers emerging and poets and balladeers gaining fame in popular publications like The Bulletin. C.J. Dennis, Banjo Patterson, Miles Franklin, Dorothea McKellar and Henry Lawson might be just a few of the familiar names to you, perhaps. If not, I will introduce you to some of Lawson's work at least and you might like to look up a few of the others yourself. On reflection, I think most Australians will know some of McKellar's work too, but I wonder if you'd recognise the first verse of her now very famous poem. It reads, The love of field and coppice, of green and shaded lanes, 
of ordered woods and gardens is running in your veins, strong love of grey-blue distance, brown streams and soft dim skies, I know but cannot share it, my love is otherwise. Now does that ring a bell? <laughs> the second verse continues, I love a sunburnt country, a land of sweeping plains, of ragged mountain ranges, of drought and flooding rains. <laughs> so I'm sure that rings a bell now, right? Now, Banjo Patterson was another of Lawson's contemporaries, and you might already be familiar with at least a few of his works too, like The Man from Snowy River, Clancy of the Overflow, or the amusing Man from Ironbark. Or what about Walsing Matilda? Patterson was born in rural Australia, but his family mixed with those more akin to the Bush aristocracy. Henry Lawson, on the other hand, was born to struggling stock, on a clapped-out goldfield in the Mudgee district. He always tended to being the working man's hero, viewing the bush with more realism than romanticism, as some of his peers celebrated it. But, as usual, he was, of course, a man of his time, so we must view his attitudes, behaviours and writing through that historical prism, rather than our own modern perspective, to give him his due. Lawson and the other bush balladeers of his era had a particular way with the language, using words that were characteristic of their time, and they can, these days, sometimes seem quite dated and twee. But, if you let them, they can conjure up a brilliant picture of another era, and this makes them all the more valuable now, I think. Lawson usually wrote simple plots, but he gave the scenes well-drawn characters evocative places and great atmosphere. But he was often looking back, writing largely about an Australia from his youth, a bush life that was already disappearing towards the turn of the century. While I love a great many of his works, and do keep in mind I'm no literature critic or expert, I do find the language now very dated and somewhat jingoistic, but I do read them through that era's prism, and all can be forgiven. The racism of the era, though, can grate. But again, I don't want to get into that with any modern eye, but rather just retell the story of who Lawson was and what we celebrate him for. And of course, some of the terminology from the era might be a complete mystery to international listeners and readers. He celebrated the Aussie vernacular, and he wrote as his characters may have spoken, so some verses can require deciphering. Even for the Australians, much of the lingo has long passed out of use. Still, as I said, there is a joy and interest in reading them and conjuring up those images from the past. Henry Lawson was born on June 17, 1867, in Grenfell, New South Wales, one of the many old gold rush towns winding down in the district. He arrived as a native-born lad just one year ahead of the complete cessation of convict transportation to Australia. All future incomers would be arriving by choice. By that time, the free settlers and those arriving for the gold, as well as Australian-born generations, made up the majority of the estimated 1.5 million population anyway, though I suspect this population number would not have included the original Indigenous inhabitants. Lawson's father was one of those free incomers, a Norwegian named Nils Larsen, Nils, known in Australia as Peter, had been a sailor who had jumped ship in Melbourne in 1855 to try his luck on the goldfields, 
then booming in Victoria. Failing to strike it lucky there, at some point he made his way north to try his luck in the goldfields of New South Wales, and he later settled there. He was a hard-working man, educated and a teetotaler, and one might have assumed that he was a good catch for an intellectual country girl. And he did indeed meet such a girl in Louisa Albury. Though there was a fair age gap between Nils, at 32, and the 18-year-old Louisa, they married anyway in 1866. Sadly, though, the marriage did not appear to fulfil the promise for either of them. Despite Nils working very hard and providing for the needs of the family, Louisa found family life, in the dusty goldfields and bush blocks as they moved around, unfulfilling. Young Henry arrived in their first year of marriage, and they appear to have taken the opportunity, when registering his birth, to anglicise his surname on the birth certificate, and so now we know them afterwards as the Lawsons. More children followed over the years, though Louisa seems to have suffered from what today might be described as postnatal depression. Certainly she was prone to frequent bouts of melancholy, which would have made life difficult for them all, and probably put further strain on the marriage, too. In later years, Henry recalled being aware of his mother's depression and was very sensitive to it, upset at not being able to help. Henry states in his autobiographical writing that he recalled his early life being pretty unhappy. Being an anxious child and sensitive to the state of his mother's mental health and happiness was a burden for him, as was the growing discontent between his parents. Niels and Louisa moved about the mudgy goldfields in the early years, but in 1873 they settled on a selection at Pipe Clay, now called Urundery, where Niels constructed a dwelling for them all. He found work undertaking building and other labouring employment across the district, and Louisa tried to make the selection productive. Louisa knew education was the key to the future options for her children, away from the dull, back-breaking labour required in the bush, and she lobbied hard to get a school in the town. But in the meantime, she educated the children at home. A voracious reader herself, she felt it important to ensure the children also had a stimulating intellectual life of sorts, and she read to them often and from an early age, from a wide range of books, including Dickens, Poe, Shakespeare, and a favourite of Henry's, Defoe and his wonderful Robinson Crusoe. The reading made her happy, and it sparked a fertile inner world of words for the young Henry. He found a comfortable and rewarding little niche for himself in reading and writing, and his mother seems to have strongly encouraged him from an early age. The local school that Louisa had spent a good deal of time lobbying for finally opened when Henry was nine years old. But that same year, he had some sort of illness which led to a loss of hearing, and trying to hear and concentrate in a classroom environment became difficult and tiring for him. Though he was pretty good at his schoolwork, he soon began to struggle, and it's a shame because he obviously had the intellectual capacity to do well. Over the next few years, his deafness increased, further isolating him from his peers and the community around him, making conversation and communication difficult with those who didn't treat him with patience. This, in turn, caused him more anxiety and social discomfort. The hearing impediment was later diagnosed as irreversible and untreatable. Around 1878, they lost one of Henry's baby sisters to fever, and again Louisa fell into depression. 
often unable to properly care for the other children, and comforted only by writing about her grief, some of her work even being published in the local papers. Things became grim at home. Within a year, his younger brother had run away to live with his grandparents, and there he stayed. So Henry's childhood had its share of trauma. He described feeling always separate from the others and not fitting in, so he looks to have been a sorry, solitary, melancholy little chap himself, a target for the local bullies and cruel talk. He describes his deafness as, quote, clouding my whole life to drive me into myself and to be, in great measure, responsible for my writing, unquote. So I guess that might be the silver lining, if you were to look for one. As the eldest boy, his days were filled with practical, physical contributions to the selection, working in the garden or helping his father with building work. But while he appreciated and understood the hard work required, he aspired to a more cerebral world. Henry later described his father as, quote, domestic, methodical and practical, one of the hardest-working, kindest-hearted men I ever knew, unquote. But Nils also seems to have been a strong disciplinarian. His work took him away from the selection for regular periods, so Louisa was often on her own, more unhappily trapped in their rural isolation, when what she craved was the stimulation of the city. You can imagine Henry observing the trials of her life there, without her husband to assist, feeding those reflections into his later work, particularly the short story The Drover's Wife, perhaps. Discussing the story The Drover's Wife, written in 1892, the State Library of New South Wales wrote, quote, She has few pleasures to think of as she sits here alone by the fire, wrote Henry Lawson in his famous short story. Isolated for long periods of time while her husband is away, the wife in the story has fought a bushfire, a flood, intruders, illness, disease and death, and now she faces a snake as she tries to protect her family. Throughout his life Lawson had many opportunities to observe the plight of women living on the land, but surely one of the earliest must have been watching his own mother, Louisa, as she ran the family selection while her husband was away working. Stories such as The Drover's Wife are a tribute to the strength of women like Louisa. Unquote. By the time Henry was thirteen, with his hearing further compromised, he ceased attending school, and instead worked with his father for the next few years on the building jobs he took across the region. Again, the State Library of New South Wales suggested Henry enjoyed the camaraderie of working with the men and his father, enjoying the solidarity and the companionship he would later capture so well in his writing, the mateship. But it also suggested this was when Henry discovered a taste for alcohol. It helped him overcome his shyness and would have given him some respite from his anxieties. He admired his father's work ethic and was happy to undertake the physical labour with him, but it was in no way a fulfilling future for him. In his downtime he continued writing, and despite a tense relationship developing with his mother as he matured, she did recognise he had a flair there that was to be nurtured. A writer herself, she appreciated his talent and recognised his skill with language. She could see it might grow into something quite special. In time he would find others who would recognise that and nurture his early talents too. He had managed only about three years of formal education, but he seems to have developed pretty well from the reading his mother always encouraged. In January 1883, when the drought and desolation finally became unmanageable, 
Nils leased his struggling selection, and the family separated. Louisa took the children to Sydney, leaving Nils behind, working where he could find it, and sending money for the children when he could. She made ends meet by subletting rooms in her rented home in Sydney and taking in sewing. But what really saved her was finding like-minded people who could nurture her writing and provide a sense of belonging at last. Henry was able to find work as an apprentice carriage hand and painter with the Hudson brothers and was able to contribute to the household. But of course he found that job as stupefying as the labouring on the farm and his hearing difficulties continued to cause him grief at work as it had done at school. His future poems and stories would often draw on or recall scenes from the places of his childhood, like the two-room timber house his father built, being reminiscent of the home of the drover's wife, or the school in the poem Old Bark School being the one from his childhood. Quote, it was built of bark and poles, and the floor was full of holes, where each leak in rainy weather made a pool, and the walls were mostly cracks lined with calico and sacks, there was little need for windows in the school. Unquote. Working hard during the day at his painting job, he tried again attending school at night, but he found the long hours gruelling, and he could not pass the exams to allow entrance into university. He was finding his life in Sydney as unrewarding and lonely as the old life in pipe clay. His own bouts of melancholy were becoming more common and more pronounced, and while he found some solace in his writing, he was beginning to hmm, self-medicate his unhappiness, as we might say in these times, with binge drinking. By mid-1886, he was laid off at Hudson's and had to continually hunt around for odd jobs across the city, house painting and the like. But with persistent encouragement from his mother, he continued his writing, with some of his works being printed in publications of her friends and colleagues. Louisa herself was blossoming in Sydney, as somewhat of a radical, nationalist and feminist writer. She supported the causes of republicanism and the politics of the working class, and Louise would play a significant part in the women's movements, including starting up a women's paper called The Dawn. By the late 1880s, Henry was crafting poems that reflected those causes too, and his mother's friends helped find places to publish his work, including The Republican, a radical journal run by Louisa and William Keep. Before too long, though, his material found a wider audience when his work came to the attention of the newly minted The Bulletin. Founded in 1880 by J.F. Archibald and John Haynes, The Bulletin aimed to, quote, establish a journal which cannot be beaten, excellent in the illustrations which embellish its pages and unsurpassed in the vigour, freshness and geniality of its literary contributions. The Bulletin will assuredly become the very best and most interesting newspaper published in Australia. Unquote. The Bulletin continued publication for over 100 years, until 2008 actually, but it changed hands several times and swung wildly in its attitudes over the years, in its political persuasion and its editorial interests. But its original content consisted of radical political comment, sensationalised news and a focus on Australian literature. The Bulletin in those days was looking to encourage an Australian identity and they sought out a number of writers who would help mould that identity. 
In doing this research, I was surprised to discover that it really had quite a rabid nationalist agenda. And in keeping with the white Australia focus of the times, it was incredibly racist. Lawson himself and many of the others, strong contributors to these sentiments. Indeed, its full masthead, when it began, included the phrase, Australia for the white man. The National Museum entry states the bulletin became, quote, widely known for its controversial content. The magazine included racist cartoons, sexist articles, criticisms of Britain and other foreign nations, attacks on conservative governments, and, after 1886, increasingly Australian-focused material contributed by the public. Unquote. But apparently that reflected the sentiments of the Times, and it quickly rose to a circulation of around 80,000, very wide circulation for its time. The upside was that it did foster uniquely homegrown Australian writing, publishing the works of Henry Lawson, Banjo Patterson, Miles Franklin, Harry Breaker Morant, Mary Gilmore, Dorothy McCalla, Steele Rudd, C.J. Denison, Norman Lindsay, amongst many others. Some of these so-called bush poets, like Lawson and Patterson, became giants of Australian literature. The first poem of Lawson's that they published was A Song of the Republic, in October 1887, when he was just 20 years old. The editors introduced him thus, quote, We take pleasure in stating that the writer is a young Australian boy who has yet had an imperfect education, a youth whose poetic genius here speaks eloquently for itself, unquote. His works Golden Gully and The Wreck of the Derry Castle were published soon after, in the Christmas edition in December. This was real published work. Henry felt he'd made it to the big time. The Bulletin had been publishing the work of Andrew Patterson, known as Banjo, for the previous year already, and while he was also considered a master of the bush ballad, his upbringing and experience was well removed from Henry's, and the editor Archibald saw great promise in Lawson and would coach and mentor him through the years. Lawson and Patterson were to have an interesting relationship play out in the pages of the Bulletin, both celebrated as bush poets, Banjo had a more romanticised view of country life, a vision splendid, versus Lawson's description of the harsh realities for working men and women, trying to make a living on the unreliable and unforgiving land. There was a period when the two did mock battle over their differing views, in a series of publications that came to be known as the Bulletin Debate. Knight describes the friendly rivalry as being a deliberate ploy for self-promotion and increased income. It was suggested that Henry had approached Banjo to get the debate going. As they were paid by the line for each piece published, they would benefit from stirring up a bit of public interest. They should write against each other in ways that would encourage a response, and they could keep submitting work to counter each other and getting paid for it until Archibald called a halt. Banjo agreed it was an interesting idea, and we'll talk more about that shortly. But first, I just want to mention those early published works of Lawson. The Song of the Republic was retitled by Archibald from a previous name, Sons of the South, and included the following lines. Sons of the South make choice between, sons of the South choose true, the land of the morn or the land of the inn, the old dead tree and the young tree green, the land that belongs to the Lord and the Queen, and the land that belongs to you, unquote. So it was a pro-Republican poem, a highly political and potentially divisive work. 
Golden Gully, was about the now abandoned and dismal goldfields. Wreck of the Derry Castle was a solemn poem about the loss of a ship and those on board, at a time when this would have been an all-too-common occurrence. So there had been a little selection there, to demonstrate his range. He was hopeful the bulletin would purchase more. Finding work across Sydney that brought an income became harder, and he was experiencing the hardships of the poor working class around him, those struggling men, soon to drift into further desperation and despair with the deepening recession, and their plight was to be a focus of one of his next successful poems, Faces in the Street. In 1888, Louisa was instrumental in starting up The Dawn, the Australian women's journal and mouthpiece. No lightweight women's magazine, this was to be a political, feminist, republican, radical journal, and Henry would contribute suitable pieces to this, as well as to the republican. He was ever the supporter of the underdog, though while he was happy to lend his writing skills and passion to creating inspiring works for these publications, albeit anonymously, he was not himself involved directly in any of the causes. He was always the observer just wanting to focus on the words, and to his delight, right at that time, there were a number of outlets now willing to pay him for them. But while his popularity rose and rose, the payment for his works remained small, and he was unable to make ends meet from writing alone. So it was off to do any painting and labouring jobs he could find to make ends meet. Writers of today will sympathise. He found a group of intellectuals and bohemians to mix with in the city pubs, though his deafness still gave him a level of discomfort in social situations, and he was displaying a tendency to drink himself silly if he could raise the funds. This pattern was to become lifelong, and it would severely reduce his capacity to control other aspects of his life. The 1890s in Australia brought with it a developing depression and financial crisis. A paper reflecting on historical depressions at the RBA describes the depression this way, quote, The overextension of the 1880s property boom and its unravelling led to a number of building society and bank collapses, an abrupt collapse of private investment in the pastoral industry and urban development, and a sharp pullback in public infrastructure investment, a fall-off in capital inflow from Britain, adverse movements in the terms of trade, and drought in 1895 accentuated and prolonged the depression, unquote. Thousands of workers in the cities lost their jobs, and unemployment in the bush rose as wool and wheat prices plummeted. Many men headed out with their swags to look for other opportunities. For my international listeners, you may already be aware, but a swag referred to personal belongings wrapped in a bundle or bedroll that would be carried about by the swagman, sometimes called a sundowner or a swaggy. That is, a bloke travelling the country on foot looking for work, odd jobs or food handouts. In other countries he might be labelled a hobo or a tramp. So while in 1890 Lawson might have felt himself on a good trajectory with his writing, gaining some income from the Bulletin, Town and Country Journal, Freeman Journal, Illustrated Sydney News and the like, things were about to get a lot tougher. His desire to get work as a staff writer for one of the larger journals would become elusive in the years ahead. Lawson's first short story, or sketch, as they called them at the Bulletin, was printed there in December 1888. Titled His Father's Mate, 
and telling the story of a lad working with his father in an abandoned goldfield, helping to work the claim before disaster struck, hit a particular nerve for Nils and made him very proud of his boy Henry. No doubt there would have been elements that clearly reflected some of Lawson's own childhood experiences with Nils. Nils Lawson died soon after that publication, on December 31st, so it proved to be very poignant timing. It was November of 1889 that Lawson met Patterson in the offices of the Bulletin. Archibald introduced them to each other. While they were of a similar age and both held places in the hearts of the Australian people, from the work they'd produced to date, they couldn't have been more different in background and outlook, really. Andrew Barton, or Banjo Patterson, was born just three years before Henry, in February of 1864, at the Narambla Estate, near Orange in New South Wales, to an altogether more well-to-do family. While his father had some financial difficulties when the boy was very young, he seems to have recovered well, and Banjo was educated by a governess, and then schooled at Sydney Grammar, before going on to become a solicitor in 1886. Around that same time, he began submitting his own work, under the pseudonym The Banjo, to various publications, and later became a popular contributor to the Bulletin, as mentioned earlier. Though Banjo's adult life was not without controversy or wild ways, he seemed to be able to navigate successful paths more easily. Banjo is the author of the well-known poem The Man from Snowy River, which was published in the Bulletin in December of 1889. And by the way, that's the very same Snowy River we talked about being diverted in the Snowy Hydro Scheme episodes recently. You'll probably know some of it. Quote, there was movement at the station, for the word had passed around that the colt from old regret had got away, and joined the wild bush horses. He was worth a thousand pound, so all the cracks had gathered to the fray. Etc. <laughs> Other works from his prolific collections included the very funny The Man from Ironbark, published in the Bulletin in 1892, and Clancy of the Overflow published in the Bulletin in December 21, 1889. <laughs> now, when I was a kid, someone I knew had a poster of this poem in their toilet, <laughs> so it was a poem I once knew very well. <laughs> I had written him a letter which I had, for want of better knowledge, sent to where I met him down the Lachlan years ago. He was shearing when I knew him, so I sent the letter to him, just on spec, addressed as follows, Clancy of the Overflow and an answer came directed in a writing unexpected, and I think the same was written with a thumbnail dipped in tar. Twas his shearing mate who wrote it, and verbatim I will quote it. Clancy's gone to Queensland droving, and we don't know where he are. In my wild, erratic fancy, visions came to me of Clancy, gone a-droving down the cooper where the western drovers go. As the stock are slowly stringing, Clancy rides behind them singing, for the drover's life has pleasures that the townsfolk never know. And so on it goes. <laughs> and of course, it was Banjo who wrote the famous Walsing Matilda, and later worked, possibly a little too closely according to the gossip, with a lady friend to set it to previously existing music. I spoke earlier of the bulletin debate that Henry and Banjo had kicked off with their dueling poetry taking a dig at each other's representations of the Australian bush experience. Mainly Henry and Banjo, but other writers too, argued over the nature of life in the country and how it was characterised. 
The bulletin debate mainly raged through 1892 to 1893, but it sparked a much wider public debate on the nature of true Australia, an idea about the romanticism of the bush, particularly imagined by those who really have no practical experience of an Australia outside the urban fringe, versus the reality and lived experiences. On July 9th, 1892, Lawson published the opening salvo, the poem Borderland, later retitled Up the Country, in which Lawson criticised those city dwellers who tended to idealise life in the bush. It included lines such as, quote, I am back from up the country, very sorry that I went, seeking for the southern poet's land whereon to pitch my tent. I have lost a lot of idols which were broken on the track, burnt a lot of fancy verses, and I'm glad that I am back. Further out may be the pleasant scenes of which our poets boast, but I think the country's rather more inviting round the coast. And miles and miles of thirsty gutters, strings of muddy waterholes, in the place of shining rivers walled off by cliffs and forest bowls, barren ridges, gullies, ridges where the ever-maddening flies, fiercer than the plagues of Egypt, swarm around your blighted eyes, bush where there's no horizon, where the buried bushman sees nothing, nothing but the sameness of the ragged stunted trees. Unquote. And so it goes on. On the 23rd of July, Patterson responded with in defence of the bush. He considered Lawson's outlook too full of pessimism and reminded him that all negativity was in the eye of the beholder. He wrote, in part, quote, So you're back from up the country, Mr Lawson, where you went, and you're cursing all the business in bitter discontent. Well, we grieve to disappoint you, and it makes us sad to hear that it wasn't cool and shady and there wasn't plenty beer. And, and the roads were hot and dusty and the plains were burnt and brown, and no doubt you're better suited drinking lemon squash in town. Yet perchance if you should journey down that very track you went, in a month or two at furthest you would wonder what it meant. Where the sun-baked earth was gasping like a creature in its pain, you would find the grasses waving like a field of summer grain. And the miles of thirsty gutters blocked with sand and choked with mud, you would find the mighty rivers with the turbid sweeping flood. For the rain and drought and sunshine make no changes in the street, in the sullen line of buildings and the ceaseless tramp of feet. But the bush has moods and changes as the seasons rise and fall, and the men who know the bushland, they are loyal through it all. Unquote. And so on it went. <laughs> Edward Dyson stuck his bib in on the 30th with a great edition titled The Fact of the Matter. And then Lawson answered Patterson on August 6th with In Answer to Banjo and Otherwise, also titled The City Bushman. In part, it read, It was pleasant up the country, Mr. Banjo, where you went, for you sought the greener patches and you travelled like a gent, and you cursed the trams and buses and the turmoil and the push, though you know the squalid city needn't keep you from the bush. True, the bush hath moods and changes, and the bushman hath them too, for he's not a poet's dummy, he's a man, the same as you, but his back is growing rounder, slaving for the absentee, and his toiling wife is thinner than a country wife should be. Though the bush has been romantic and it's nice to sing about, there's a lot of patriotism that the land could do without. 
sort of British workman nonsense that shall perish in the scorn of the drover who is driven and the shearer who is shorn, of the struggling western farmers who have little time for rest and are ruined on selections in the sheep-infested west. Droving songs are pretty, but they merit little thanks from the people of the country in possession of the banks, and so on. So it was getting quite robust. Now the banks and the absentee landlords were getting a serve for the plight of the working man too. On August 20, one HHCC authored The Overflow of Clancy, <laughs> again deriding Banjo for his lightweight romanticism and lack of acknowledgement of the real bush hardships. August 27th saw F. Francis Kenner piling on with Banjo of the Overflow. <laughs> and in October, Banjo responded again with an answer to various bards. It starts off, quote, Well, I've waited mighty patient while they all came rolling in, Mr. Lawson, Mr. Dyson and the others of their kin, with their dreadful, dismal stories of the overlander's camp, how his fire is always smoky and his boots are always damp, and they paint it so terrific it would fill one's soul with gloom. But you know they're fond of writing about corpses and the tomb. So before they curse the bushland, they should let their fancy range and take something for their livers and be cheerful for a change. Unquote. Finally, Lawson took one last swipe, also in October, with the poets of the tomb. And with that, the debate, as such, ceased. Though two years later, Banjo published A Voice from the Town, which some consider the final shot. In an article that quoted Banjo Patterson in 1939, he recalled his thoughts about the bulletin debate. Quote, Henry Lawson was a man of remarkable insight in some things and of extraordinary simplicity in others. We were both looking for the same reef, if you get what I mean, but I had done my prospecting on horseback with my meals cooked for me, while Lawson had done his prospecting on foot and had had to cook for himself. Nobody realised this better than Lawson, and one day he suggested that we should write against each other, he putting the bush from his point of view and I putting it from mine. We ought to do pretty well out of it, he said. We ought to be able to get in three or four sets of verses before they stop us. This suited me all right, for we were working on space, and the pay was very small, so we slam-banged away at each other for weeks and weeks. Not until they stopped us, but until we ran out of material, unquote. But while the seeming rivalry had created quite a buzz and prompted some real debate about the two Australias, town and country, it hadn't actually raised their income much, as they'd planned. Over the years, Lawson also tried his luck looking for work in Western Australia, New Zealand, and he was offered a couple of staff positions at different papers, but they usually fell through, like the paid position at Brisbane Boomerang, the publication failing before he even took up his job offer. The various other attempts at steady income were short-lived, so it was always back to the odd jobs, piecework and writing and drinking. His friends in the writing world noticed his restlessness, despondency and lack of discipline. Many felt his state was due to the drink and the influence of his carousing mates. Quote, Recognising Lawson was in bad shape and his future depended on him getting away from the bohemian set that continually drew him back to the unproductive drink, J.F. Archibald suggested that he take a trip inland, at the Bulletin's expense. 
with five pound and a rail ticket to Burke, he set out in September of 1892 on what was to be one of the most important journeys of his life. Unquote. He was to report firsthand for the bulletin on the lives of bushmen and country workers in the region. The 1890s were tough times with the economy in depression, and Lawson slung his swag along the back roads of Burke like all the other swaggies, getting work where he could always the acute observer. Quote, you can have no idea of the horrors of the country out here, he wrote to his aunt. Men tramp and beg and live like dogs. It is two months since I slept in what you might call a bed. We walk as far as we can, according to the water, and then lie down and roll ourselves in our blankets, unquote. While he thought he knew harsh and unforgiving conditions in his youth, Humping his swag around the Burke district, working at house-painting and in shearing sheds of dusty stations, proved to be eye-opening. As he tramped about looking for work, with the many other sundowners on the roads over those months, he was even more shocked by the desperation and despair being experienced in the Australian bush and outback. His experiences were to leave a lasting impression and provide ongoing inspiration for the range of work he produced over the coming years. Archibald's intervention had been very productive and possibly life-saving at the time. His experiences in Burke both strengthened his impressions of Australian mateship, but also softened his earlier tendency to judge people by their class, and that would later surprise some, like the staunch union men. He was a man who understood nuance, though. He wanted to broaden minds. Of women's plight, he wrote, quote, Get rid of the idea that the shearers are the only wronged men on earth and the squatters are the only tyrants. Remember that the hardships of the bush life at its worst is not the circumstance compared to what thousands of poor women in the cities have to go through. Unquote. And of the class divide, he said, quote, That's what's the matter with Australia and with the world today. The different classes ought to know more of each other's lives. Unquote. So after his time on the roads and in the shearing sheds, he saw it less black and white, perhaps, judging the people he met by their actions and not by their station. Lawson had a number of passionate attachments over the years and would have married a couple of times in his youth had his desires gone to plan, but in December of 1895 he met Bertha Brett. After a very brief courtship, they married in April of the new year. Though friends and family around him recognised it would be a challenging change required for him to make a good marriage, he insisted he could change his ways and settle down. Bertha was just 19 and Henry 28, the age gap an echo perhaps of his parents' unfortunate match. Lawson had a large library of works by the mid-1890s and Louisa and her friends helped publish his first collection, short stories in prose and verse but it was a rushed and poorly produced job, and only a few got into general circulation, Henry not making the kind of money he'd hoped for. Fortunately, soon after that failure, Angus and Robertson offered to formally publish a collection of his poems, titled In the Days When the World Was Wide and Other Verses, 1896, and soon after a second volume of works titled While the Billy Boyles and Other Stories, 1896, which was his first major short story collection. While the Billy Boyles remains one of the great classic collections of Australian literature, and it includes one of my favourites, The Drover's Wife, 
considered one of his best works, it certainly paints a bleak picture of the lot of women left on the family selections to fend for themselves while their partners are away. After our year of isolation and lockdown, and Zoom drinks and online games, of homeschooling and social distancing, we might perhaps reflect that isolation without the luxury of communications was the norm for many, only a few generations back, for those on the land. And the summer worries about protecting your children from bushfire and snakes. Oh, it doesn't bear thinking about, really. Angus and Robertson had not long before published Banjo Patterson's works, which sold very well, and they hoped to get Lawson's first book out before the following Christmas purchasing period too, but the publishers were keen to match the high quality of Patterson's book, and, unfortunately, it did not make it to print in time, missing that big market opportunity. But it did do quite well anyway, on its release in February of 1896, though again not well enough to afford Lawson a steady living income. Sadly, even though he was now a married man with responsibilities, he seems to have been unable to moderate his binge drinking, complicating his domestic situation further. The following years continued unsettled with spells of writing while scrabbling for an income and short periods where he tried to get his life back on even keel, getting off the grog, even taking a teaching position in New Zealand. But it brought them no real relief and they stayed only a short time. Back in Sydney they were again struggling financially. He fell into depression when he wasn't working, and he resumed drinking and carousing, and the marriage was seriously faltering. There were infatuations and affairs with other women, but he would always beg forgiveness and promise to dedicate himself to the marriage again. In 1898 he entered a sanatorium for alcoholics, and on his release settled back down to writing for another try at being productive and responsible. He felt it was clear that in Australia it wasn't possible to make a comfortable living from writing alone. He claimed that he'd only ever earned £700 in total after 12 years of working as a writer. Perhaps they needed a larger, more mature market. After begging travel funds from one of his remaining benefactors, he and Bertha decided to reset their marriage again with a fresh start, and on April 20th, 1900, they made their way to London for new opportunities and away from bad influences. They travelled with their young son, Joseph, whom they called Jim, and with two-month-old little Bertha, or Barter, as she was also called. While there was some very good writing achieved during his sojourn in London, some critics saying that the Joe Wilson and his mates series was some of his very best writing, he failed to break into the literary scene there in any substantial way. Indeed, things seemed to go from bad to worse in a completely unanticipated way. Quote, the strain of family life in unfamiliar surrounds and an unkind climate, his wife's serious illness, she'd spent three months in Bethlehem Royal Hospital as a mental patient, and the consequent return of the soul-destroying task of writing under pressure to pay for the bills, all sapped Lawson's early resilience and affected his health, the quality of his work and the nature of his literary aspirations and plans. Unquote. By March 1901, Henry had also fallen into despair himself, and the children were in foster care. When Bertha returned home, Henry was still struggling with income and irregular binges on the town, though he should have been home caring for her, still fragile, and the children. And it surprises me, given his state over the years, that he had a number of affairs, but one liaison from before he left Australia was still obsessing him, 
and he was becoming fixated with the notion of rekindling his relationship with the Miss Hannah Thornburn. Certainly, it was all falling apart in London, anyway. It hadn't provided the solace and success he'd hoped for. Indeed, while he'd managed some good writing there, it had brought them both down lower, and there seemed little prospect that their marriage might survive or see any improvement in their general prospects. By April of 1902, he admitted defeat, and he arranged for Bertha to return home with the children. He planned to follow, travelling separately, but not to join Bertha in Australia. Instead, he was keen to return to the arms of the 25-year-old Hannah Thornburn, hopeful, perhaps, of rekindling the relationship and starting a new life with her. But that reunion never occurred. She died from infection just six weeks before his arrival. Davis suggests that the cause of her death, recorded as endometritis, was a euphemism for a botched abortion. She'd obviously moved on, but Henry was devastated. He and Bertha did attempt another reconciliation after that, but it was unsuccessful. In fact, Miss Thornburn's death seemed to break Henry. By August he was back in hospital, and Bertha and the children were living with her mother. The Australian Dictionary of Biography recorded that Lawson's quote, personal and creative life entered upon a ghastly decline. Unquote. In December of 1902, he either fell or attempted suicide by jumping from a rocky 80 foot cliff at Bluefish Point at Manly. Whether he deliberately jumped or slipped in a drunken desire to have fate take control, it seems pretty likely he was strongly contemplating his own end just by being up there. Davis records an extract from an unpublished poem Lawson wrote, called Lawson's Fall. Quote, "'Twas the white clouds flying over, or the crawling sea below, or the torture of the present, or the dreams of long ago, or the horror of the future born of black day's fate, or all, never mind, the gods who saw it know the cause of Lawson's fall." Unquote. He spent time in hospital, first recuperating from his physical injuries, and then once again drying out and attempting a life of sobriety, with Bertha visiting to attend and assist as she could, but there was really no longer any hope of repairing the marriage. They had been down that road too many times. Though they remained in communication, in April the following year Bertha sought and obtained a formal decree of judicial separation and Lawson would need to focus on work to make the payments for upkeep of his children. The affidavit recorded the reasons for lawful separation as drunkenness and cruelty, and they do not mention the adultery. Quote, My husband has during three years and upwards been a habitual drunkard and habitually been guilty of cruelty towards me. My affidavit consists of the acts and following matters. That my husband during the last three years struck me in the face and about the body and blackened my eye and hit me with a bottle and attempted to stab me and pulled me out of bed when i was ill and purposely made noise in my room when i was ill and pulled my hair and repeatedly used abusive and insulting language to me and was guilty of diverse other acts of cruelty to me whereby my health and safety are endangered Unquote. judicial separation was granted and was declared in june of nineteen o three Bertha remained caring for the two surviving children, son Jim and daughter Bertha. Around this time, Davis records that they had a final pregnancy conceived in the turmoil of their regular reunions and separations, but which was still born in late 1903. 
Such a sorrow may have helped put to bed the prospect of future reconciliations. Though Bertha noted the cruelty Henry was capable of when drunk, she also acknowledged that, free of the grog, he was a good man, and he had often tried to break free of its destructive hold. Quote, for Harry was, above all things, loyal, affectionate, warm-hearted, and deeply sincere. He was always greatly troubled at our difficulties, and with each decision that we made, each new venture that we tried, he would be as eager and excited as a boy. He would fling himself into it with immense energy and enthusiasm, and his discouragement would be profound when things did not turn out as we hoped they would." Unquote. But of course you cannot keep living like that, hoping things will change. You must take care of your own safety, mental and physical health, and that of your children. But of course his friends and family reported that the madness and difficulty lay with Bertha, that she was not loving, that she set the children against him and brought him grief. But most people had seen right from the start that Lawson was unlikely to make a stable and successful husband, and that would likely have been the case whoever he had married. He later wrote a poem titled the separation, and he cannot help but think it was a reflection directly on his own marriage. In part it said, We knew too little of the world, and you and I were good. T'was paltry things that wrecked our lives, as well I knew they would. The people said our love was dead, but how were they to know? Ah, had we loved each other less, we'd not have quarrelled so. Unquote. Their future communications became more tense as she was always in need of the maintenance money for the children, and he was jailed on occasion for failure to pay. But she seemed to facilitate some contact with the children when he was well enough. In relation to his suicide attempt, his sad state was well known around Sydney, and the Bulletin published a rather vague explanation he wrote for public consumption, which began, quote, I had a fall a week or two back. It wasn't the first, unquote. In December of 1903, he wrote a rather more revealing and personal account of his addiction and the pull of alcohol. He hated himself when he was drinking, but he couldn't bear his life without the anaesthesia and the false confidence that Grog gave him. While his explanations may have helped some readers to understand the strength of the desire that kept pulling him under, it did not provide any healing catharsis for him, no additional strength to fight it, and again and again he found himself relapsing. Fortunately, he was able to continue writing, but the quality of work was less consistent, and some said declining. In the years that followed, he spent several short spells in jail or in recovery in sanatoriums, suffering from depression and alcoholism. Lawson had said that he turned to alcohol to forget his shyness, his deafness, and for relief and refuge from the many things he felt so keenly, but which it seemed he would never be able to attain and there was no respite from these things later in life either. Many people gave up on him as his behaviour became more unbearable. In the end he was banned from attending the offices of the Bulletin after breaking glass there in some drunken rage. But a few steadfast friends continued to try and help him dry out and regain a foothold each time, or provided money to keep a roof over his head. His, well, housekeeper she was mostly described as, Mrs Byers, was the most steadfast of all, remaining with him until the end. When the First World War broke out, Henry was of course too old and too ill to serve in any capacity, but to the surprise of some, he both supported Australia's involvement in the war and the idea of conscription. His relationship with his ex-wife, 
remained mostly difficult, thawing a little towards the end of his life as the children reached adulthood. His son Jim had grown into a fine young man, and his daughter Bertha had completed a Bachelor of Arts. Quite the achievement. On September 1921, he suffered a cerebral hemorrhage at 54 years old, which left him with some disability, but mercifully he was still able to write. He returned to the care of Mrs. Byers, but in September of the following year, the next hemorrhage claimed his life. The Sunday Times obituary was headed, Death of Our Greatest Poetic Genius. On September 4, 1922, Henry Lawson's state funeral was the first ever granted to a non-official. Among the mourners were politician Jack Lang, who would later become Premier of New South Wales, and Prime Minister Billy Hughes. It was Hughes who labelled Lawson the poet of Australia, the minstrel of the people. In arranging a state funeral, Lee suggested that politics was at the fore when it became clear that there might be political gain from associating oneself with the Australian bard inappropriating the national capital already vested in his reputation. Initially, on learning of Lawson's death, Robertson, on behalf of Angus and Robertson, expecting Henry died broke, sent Mrs Byers £10 to ensure that funds might be available for a funeral. But others were already lobbying the New South Wales state government to grant a state funeral, knowing that, with Lawson's celebrity, they would be shamed at the prospect that, quote, he might have been buried like a pauper, unquote. The New South Wales government considered the grounds required, weighing up awarding a funeral on, on the basis of its distinguished citizenship against Lawson's very public poverty, alcoholism and history of imprisonment for failing to pay Bertha's maintenance, and they decided it prudent to simply grant funds to cover the funeral expenses instead. Prime Minister Billy Hughes, though, quote, seized the opportunity to draft the national poet into the service of his own political mythology and at the same time publicly fashion himself as the authentic Australian leader, unquote. And so the Commonwealth-funded Lawson State Funeral, held then at St Andrew's Cathedral, George Street, Sydney. In his tribute to Lawson, Hughes noted that, quote, a great host of Australians admired and loved him. His death left a gap that would not soon be filled. He knew intimately the real Australia and was its greatest minstrel, unquote. But Jack Lang recalled Lawson's funeral later in 1956, saying, quote, They buried Harry like a lord, a state funeral for a down-and-out scribbler of verses and short stories, the poet who hated shame and pretense, the lover of the underdog, then in death to receive the homage of leading citizens, a week before they would have dodged by the other side to avoid him. Now they wanted to bathe in his reflected glory. Henry Lawson, with his delicate touch of irony, would have done full justice to that story, unquote. Politics aside, he was embraced as the people's poet, and thousands lined the street for his funeral procession. An overflowing gathering of people of all stations of life, reported the Sydney Morning Herald the following day, and the attendance did indeed reflect the vast range of characters he wrote about, it was quite the send-off. Henry Lawson is buried at Waverley Cemetery in Sydney, and the State Library of New South Wales notes Waverley is the resting place for a good many of his peers too, such as Henry Kendall, Dorothea McKellar, and J.F. Archibald, the editor and bulletin publisher who gave Lawson his start and encouraged him for so many years. 
Henry was survived by his ex-wife Bertha, son Jim, and daughter Bertha Louisa, who was by then working as a librarian at the Mitchell Library in New South Wales. That state library records that she and her mother worked together to cement Lawson's reputation as a writer of merit into the future. Quote, Lawson's reputation must rest on his stories and on a relatively small group of them. Unquote. Lee concluded, quote, Henry Lawson's extraordinary popularity over the century of national change makes him an interesting and important figure. When A.G. Stevens wrote in 1895 that Henry Lawson is the voice of the bush and the bush is the heart of Australia, he'd coined a marketing jingle that was to secure the writer a special place in the pantheon of Australian cultural heroes. Lawson became the repository of national value because he was seen to express authentic local Australian experience. So, it was overall a frustratingly sad tale, really, I thought. Lawson's life perhaps only partially met his promise. He was compromised by his deafness in an era with little support and no reliable aids, and was limited by his mental health struggles with depression and drink. Though who knows, if the tortured artist trope is to be believed, perhaps it was this angst and sensitivity that gave him his empathy and insight. But I feel sorry he was unable to find a life that granted him comfort and security, and an income that might have allowed him to further explore his talents. I think I'm a fan of the people's poet on balance. So, that's it for today's episode. Given that I will not be producing a show over January, I might try to record a number of the poems I mentioned in this story today, and those that are interested can listen to them when they get released. So I won't recommend an additional podcast this month either. Otherwise, I should be back at the desk for a February pod release. Remember to head to the website at australianhistoriespodcast.com.au to see the reference list for this episode and a few related images. For those listening at release time, December 2020, extra best wishes for an improving and healthy 2021, eh? Thanks for listening. Good luck to you all. Cheers. Oh, may the showers in torrents fall and all the tanks run over. And may the grass grow green and tall in pathways of the drover. And may good angels send the rain on desert stretches sandy. And when the summer comes again, God grant it brings us Andy. And when the summer comes again, God grant it brings us Andy.